So I'll start with the obvious. Um, it's election day. And if you notice, the title of this week's lesson is Hope Deferred. <laughs> I thought that was a little ironic. It wasn't planned that way. Alice didn't, you know, pre-plan that, but I thought it was funny. Um, you know, and for some of us, it may be hard for us to be fully present today because our hope is deferred, because we're anxiously awaiting the results of the election. But I can promise you one thing. Hope placed in Christ our King will never disappoint because our Savior doesn't sit on Capitol Hill. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and that's something we can celebrate. So put aside all the election worries and let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in this country to come and worship before you, to come and gather together, um, to be able to safely go to polling locations, Lord, and cast our votes. We pray um, that your will would be done regarding the election, Lord. And we pray for the women in this room today, that we would be fully present, that we would be engaged, that we would hear your word. Um, Lord, please put me aside. Um, May your word be spoken in such a way that it is not just head information, but it, that it prompts heart transformation, that all of us leave here with a better understanding of who you are and who we are <clears throat> in light of you. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in your name. Amen. So can I let you in on a little secret? I hate musicals. And by hate, I mean that whenever I'm forced to watch a movie musical, I fast forward through all of the songs. I don't listen to a single one. Now, yes, you miss a bit of the storyline or all of the storyline, but you don't have those cheesy melodramatic songs stuck in your head all day. So for me, it's worth it. Um, so when I heard a few months ago about the Broadway uh, Tony Award winning play, Hamilton, I could care less. I was like, sure, middle schoolers and Wall Street executives are obsessed with this play and they sing along to the rap hip hop soundtrack, but mm, not my cup of tea. I don't really care. But then I watched the PBS documentary on the creation of Hamilton. And just like everyone else, I was captivated. Now, the fact that I spent a free Saturday night watching a PBS documentary means that I realized my youth has passed. I mean, that's kind of lame, but that's another story. So I watched this documentary and I was captivated because you see, it's not just a retelling of a familiar story, which is the founding of America. It's a new telling of a story. And that's where the genius of the creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda comes in because he takes a familiar story and titles it, subtitles it, The American Musical, because this story is updated to reflect America today and the diverse voices of the people who call America home today. And Oscar Eustace, who's the artistic director of the play, says this, what Lynn is doing is taking the vernacular of the streets and he's elevating it to verse. Lynn is telling the story of the founding of his country in such a way that it makes everyone present feel that they have a stake in their country. By telling the story of the founding of this country through the eyes of an illegitimate immigrant orphan told entirely by a diverse caste, he is saying, this is our country and we get to lay claim to it. So Hamilton, it's not just the retelling of a familiar story it's an old story made new. 
It's now a new story told with new meaning and new relevance for a new audience seen through new eyes. It's an old story made new. And I'd like to ask you a question. At what point do you think an old story becomes new? Our passage this week gave us a little hint. It's when that old storyline has been realized, when that old storyline has reached its fulfillment, and now a retelling of the story won't do anymore. We now need a new story. We need a new story seen through new eyes with new relevance and new meaning for a new audience. And our passage today does just that. So turn with me to Luke 22, where we find the Lord's Supper. And as we walk through the events of this fateful evening, it might be helpful for you to kind of know what's going on. So there are handouts in your table baskets that we'll walk you through. So remember that at this point, when we get to the Lord's Supper, it's now the last week of Jesus's life. Just a few days prior, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, and he'd been greeted by his followers to the cries of, Hosanna! He was greeted like a king. And his followers were anticipating that during this week might be the time that he would overthrow the Roman oppressors and usher in his new physical kingdom. Now add to that fact that over three million faithful Jews had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There is an air of expectation in the city. And so we pick up the story in Luke 22, verse 7. Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And while we're not given any specific details as to what Peter and John did, it's pretty easy to guess. You see, Peter and John were both faithful Jews, and they were probably 20 to 30 years of age, and so they'd already celebrated Passover at least 20 times in their life by now, and probably one or two of those times had been with Jesus. And then culturally as Jews, Passover had been celebrated for 1,500 years, and so the rich theology, the rich traditions, the procedures of the Passover had also been passed down. So needless to say, Peter and John knew exactly what to do when Jesus gave them instructions. They knew exactly what to do and what to expect. They knew how the evening would go. Because Passover, after all, wasn't just a familiar story. It was a family story. And this family story went something like this. 1,500 years ago, the Israelites who were Peter and John's ancestors, had been enslaved for in Egypt. And they had cried out for deliverance. And God, because he is good, heard their cries and sent Moses to Pharaoh. Nine times Moses went to Pharaoh and said, God declares, let my people go. And much like a stubborn or defiant two-year-old, he said, nope, absolutely not. They're staying right here. And so then God sent Moses a final time to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go, otherwise at midnight all of the firstborns of Egypt shall die. And Pharaoh still, because his heart was hard, said, no. And so God, because he is a God of grace and deliverance and provision, provided a way out for the Israelites. He told Moses to tell the Israelites, at twilight you will take a one-year-old lamb without blemish, you will sacrifice it, and you will take the blood of that lamb and paint it on the doorposts of your houses. 
And God said in verse 13 of Exodus 12, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you eat. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And that's where we get the name Passover, the night that the Lord passed over Israel and gave them deliverance and freedom. And Peter and John would have understood this. This story would have been in the back of their mind as they're making the preparations. And they would have known that the main point of Passover isn't so much that God delivered the Israelites by striking down the Egyptians. The main point of Passover was that God delivered the Israelites by providing a sacrificial lamb. And because what is not carefully remembered is easily forgotten, God instructed the Israelites to remember his act of deliverance every year, annually, at Passover. And so that's the setting we find ourselves in in Luke 22. Jesus and the disciples have gathered, they're in the upper room, and they are going to celebrate Passover together. They are going to remember God's faithfulness. And Jesus, because he's the head of the gathering, because he's the oldest and most significant male, he's going to be presiding over the gathering and leading them in the taking of each element. And so we pick up in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now it's pretty safe to assume at this point that the disciples had absolutely no idea what Jesus was talking about, right? They're confused. They were expecting a servant to wash their feet, but instead Jesus had washed their feet. And they're expecting that, at, that this week, perhaps this very meal, Jesus will overthrow the Roman oppressors. He will declare himself king. He will usher in his new kingdom. And there's no room for a victorious king to be suffering in the story that they're expecting. So they're baffled. There's some tension in the air. Now, according to the Jewish tradition of the time, there would have been four cups of ritual wine on the table. I am not going to drink four cups of juice due to the election, but they are symbolic. So four cups of ritual wine on the table, and each cup would have stood for or symbolized a promise that God gave the Israelites regarding their deliverance from Egypt. Um, So let's walk through that, if you'll follow along on your handout. So Jesus would have said a prayer over the first cup, and then he would have led everyone in partaking of it. He would have said, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Then the first cup would have been drunk. Next, Jesus would have dipped bitter herbs into salt water and passed it down the table for everyone to partake of. The bitter herbs, probably celery, represented the bitterness of slavery. And the salt water they were dipping it in represented the tears of their captivity. By partaking of the bitter herbs and the salt water, the disciples were identifying with what their ancestors had gone through. They were identifying with the pain of bondage and oppression, and they were crying out for a savior, for a deliverer. And after they had partaken of those elements, the youngest person or the least significant person would have then asked scripted questions asking about the meaning of each element. And I like to imagine Peter because he's the boldest and he goes after everything with gusto going, me, me, pick me, I want to ask the questions. 
But then, you know, because he's kind of brash, he probably thought, oh, wait, no, I don't. That's the least significant person. Okay, never mind. Don't ask me. Nope, I'm good. I got this. Let John answer or ask the questions. And so you see, the scripted dialogue gave Jesus an opportunity to recount the history of Israel, to recount God's faithfulness, and to explain the meaning of each element of the meal. He would have said, this is the unleavened bread, and it represents God's swift deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. This is the roasted lamb, and it reminds us of the lambs that were slaughtered on the first Passover when God delivered our ancestors, the Israelites. And then Jesus would have taken the second cup of wine. He would have prayed over it and recited Exodus 6.6b. I will free you from being slaves to them. So look at, with me at verse 17 where Luke records this act. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So this is now the second time that Jesus has said he won't partake of something until the kingdom of God comes. Can you feel the tension building in the room? I imagine Matthew leaning over to Andrew and going, what's going on? Is this the Passover story that your family told you? Because this isn't the story that I know. What's going on? But the disciples didn't have to wait long to figure out where Jesus was going with this Passover story. After drinking the second cup, Jesus was supposed to pray over the unleavened bread and break it and pass it out. However, Jesus, because he is our Lord, he did something completely different. He did something completely new. Verse 19 reads, And he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I imagine that Andrew might have whispered back to Peter, Wait. What? No, yeah, you're right. This isn't the story I know. The bread's supposed to mean God's deliverance. What is this about his body? And as if it wasn't enough that Jesus had already given new meaning to the bread, now he just further scandalized the disciples by giving new meaning to the third cup. You see, he was supposed to pray over the third cup and then say, Exodus 6, 6, C, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. But that didn't happen. Jesus once again changed the familiar story. And Luke 20, 20 reads, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is my covenant. I'm sorry, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Or in Matthew 26, 28, This is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus should have then said a prayer over the fourth cup and recited Exodus 6-7. But because Jesus had said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the fulfillment of the kingdom, he just completely skipped that cup and he went right to the concluding element, to the singing of the Psalms, 115 1, um, through 118. And these were songs that praised God for being a glorious king and a deliverer, and they were traditionally sung at the Jewish holy days. So, what happened? Jesus completely departed from the script. 
And I have to imagine that if I were there, I think at this point I would have said, this can't be it. This cannot be the end, Jesus. You know the story. I know the story. This is not the way it goes. We need to go back. We need to remember it correctly. And I think it's at that point that Jesus would have looked at me with love in his eyes and that sad and tender face and said, come, let's go to the Mount of Olives. Let's pause right there. Can you relate to the confusion and to the, uh, of the disciples on this evening? Can you see why Peter later tried to prevent Jesus from being arrested by slicing off the ear of the high priest's servant? Can you see why all the disciples said, yes, Jesus, we will follow you, even if it means death, and then a few hours later promptly deserted him? It's because they thought they knew the ending to the story. They thought, this is Jesus. This is the son of God. He's going to be the king, and we're going to ride on his coattails. We're going to go all the way to the palace. But when things didn't go according to plan, when things didn't go according to the story that they had written for Jesus and for themselves, they were disappointed. And so I wonder how many of us today, if we're honest, if we'll take a minute and look at our hearts, are disappointed in God. Perhaps we thought we knew the ending of the story and things haven't gone according to plan. Maybe you plan to be married for the rest of your life, and then your spouse deserted and divorced you. Perhaps you've spent your entire career sacrificing and putting hard work and effort in to reach a certain position or title, and now there's a health limitation that prevents you from reaching that dream. Perhaps there was a rift in a relationship with a parent and you cried and prayed out to God to heal them so that you would have time to reconcile. But there wasn't time and they passed away. We all have disappointments and rightly so. But the good news for the disappointed disciples and for us today is that this isn't the end of the Passover story. So as we study in this week's lesson, you know what lay ahead for Jesus that night, and he knew too. He knew that he was on the way to the cross and that he would experience great agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then a dear friend and disciple would betray him, and then Peter would deny him, and then the other 10 disciples would just run off and desert him. And because he was both fully God and fully man, he knew without a doubt that he was going to face an extremely painful and agonizing physical death, but also a separation from the love of his father as he bore the weight of the sins of the world upon his shoulders. And yet, did you notice what Jesus said in verse 15 at the beginning of this night? He said, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In spite of all that lay ahead, Jesus approached this Passover, his last meal with his disciples, with eagerness, with anticipation, with joy. And you know why? It's because this was the last Passover that they were going to look forward to the coming of the Messiah. 
This was the last Passover that they would long for all of these symbols to be realized because Jesus was about to secure redemption for all. He was about to fulfill the Passover and an old story was about to be made new. So from later accounts written by the disciples, we learned that the disciples had absolutely no idea what was going on that night, and I think we already knew that. You see, it was only in light of Jesus' death and resurrection that they were later able to put it all together and to understand why Jesus had changed the Passover story, why he had told a new story. It's only later that they said, oh, that's why. And because we too are prone to disappointment, because we're prone to forget that God is faithful and that he keeps his promises, let's look at some of those, oh, that's why moments. So why did Jesus say that he wouldn't eat or drink again until the fulfillment of the kingdom? Because he was foreshadowing his death. He was teaching his disciples and us in turn that his death on the cross wasn't plan B, it wasn't a tragedy, it wasn't a surprise to God. Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf was the fulfillment of God's good will and good plan to redeem all of us and reconcile us to himself. So say it with me. Oh, that's why. So why did Jesus say in reference to the bread, this is my body given for you? It's because Jesus is our great deliverer is the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And as the bread of life, Jesus willingly gave his body, his very life, for you and for me. Oh, that's why. Why did Jesus say in reference to the third cup, this cup right here, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you'll remember, it's because the third cup was associated with the promise in Exodus, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And just as the Israelites were redeemed by the blood of a lamb and were spared the plagues that God sent on the Egyptians, we too were redeemed. We were redeemed by the blood of a lamb and were spared the judgment of sins. We were spared eternal death. And when we were bought with that precious blood of Christ, literally Jesus' outstretched arms on the cross, our sins were forgiven. So say it with me. Oh, that's why. And finally, why did Peter later refer to Jesus as the Passover lamb? Because as recorded in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, at the first Passover, the blood of a lamb smeared on a wooden doorpost was needed to save the Israelites from physical death. But at the last Passover, the blood of Jesus spilled on a wooden cross was needed to save us from eternal death. Oh, that's why. Oh, that's why. Oh, that's why. Because an old story needed to be fulfilled and made new. Because Jesus, the Passover lamb, secured redemption for all. Because Jesus, the Messiah, ushered in a new covenant and a new kingdom, just as he has promised. Because God is faithful. 
oh, that's why. And I'm wondering how many of us today needed to be reminded of God's faithfulness. How many of us, long trapped in disappointment, have forgotten that God keeps his promises? How many of us, ashamed and afraid, have forgotten that Jesus, our Passover lamb, has redeemed us with a redemption that can never be lost or stolen or taken away? How many of us, weary and hopeless, have forgotten that Christ our King is coming again? How many of us have forgotten? I know I have. I've forgotten that God is almighty and that he doesn't need me to try to micromanage or control all of the circumstances. I've forgotten that God is a mighty healer and that he can bring dead things to life. I've forgotten that God is my redeemer and that he can heal my innermost broken places. I've forgotten I'm betting that you've forgotten too. Because you see, we are the Israelites. We are the disciples. We are prone to forget who God is and what he has done on our behalf and who we are in light of him. We need to regularly be reminded that God is faithful. And so God in his graciousness has given us a gift Something that we as believers are to partake of, to do in remembrance of him. Some churches call it communion. Some churches call it the Lord's Supper. And some call it the Eucharist. But whatever you call it, those of us who are believers are called to partake of the bread and the wine. As we read earlier in Luke twenty-two nineteen, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so as believers, we partake of the bread, which represents Jesus' body. And we drink the cup, which represents Jesus' shed blood, as a way of remembering, as a way of participating, as a way of identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection and the new life that he makes possible. And it's in the repetition of this meal, in the eating, and in the drinking, that the good news of Jesus is repeated. By partaking of the bread and the wine, we remind ourselves and we proclaim to the world, the old is gone and the new has come. I have been made new thanks to Jesus. God is faithful. And just as it was in the time of Israelites and just as it was in the time of Jesus, communion is still an invitation to focus on the past, the present, and the future faithfulness of God. When we take communion today, we look back on the cross and we thank God for deliverance from our sins. God is faithful. When we take communion today, we thank God for being present with us today and for never leaving nor forsaking us, for walking alongside of us, for being God with us. And when we look forward And when we take communion, we anticipate the second coming of Jesus when his kingdom will be be ultimately realized. God is faithful. And so in a moment, you'll have an opportunity to take communion and to practice what Jesus called us to do, to remember and to proclaim God's faithfulness. But first, I have a few quick reminders. One, The call for us to partake of the bread and the wine is a call for us to be in an intimate relationship with Jesus. Communion is therefore for believers who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. 
And if you do not yet know Jesus, you are more than welcome here at IBC. We are glad that you came. We just ask that you respectfully refrain from communion since it's for believers. But if you feel so led and you'd like to take a bold step of faith, you can pray right now and ask Jesus or place your faith in Jesus for the very first time. Second, we are blessed to have women of all different denominations here at IBC. Please know that you do not have to attend IBC to partake of communion. This is not IBC's table. This is the Lord's table. And third, if you'll look around the room, you'll see stations in each corner of the room. Um, when the soft music plays, please use this time to reflect, think, and pray. And then as you feel so led, go to the station closest to you. For those of you who are gluten-free, we have a special gluten-free station at the back. When you go to the communion station, a volunteer will offer you the bread. You'll take a wafer. You'll then dip it in the grape juice and then uh, partake of it and quietly return to your seat and I'll bring us back together. So let's begin. As recorded in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, please come to the communion table.